Okay, that's Halloween, a horror movie we both think is pretty good. Very good. One of the things a short scene can't show you is that Halloween is directed and acted with a great deal more artistry and craftsmanship than the sleaze bucket movies we've been talking about. But there's another much more important difference. As you watch Halloween, your basic sympathies are always enlisted on the side of the woman, not with the killer. Mm -hmm. The movie develops its women characters as independent, intelligent, spunky, and interesting people. Halloween does not hate women. Yeah, you know, when I saw that scene, I must admit, I wasn't really worrying about the woman as much as I was placing myself in that closet and thinking about that killer, how I would handle it. Uh -huh. And I was also appreciating the fact that I think Halloween not only doesn't hate women, mm -hmm. but it loves film and filmmaking. That music is just fabulous. The way he starts one theme, then lays another thing on top of it, keeping the other theme. Really good. Uh, also, the light coming through the slats in that mm -hmm. closet. Mm -hmm. This is a film that's sort of up. That scene is up and you're jumpy rather than getting depressed and feeling sorry mm -hmm. and feeling sorry that you're even watching it. An upbeat thing. You know, I think what you're touching on here is that artistry can redeem any subject matter. Sure. That's why I've always been opposed to censorship. I don't mm -hmm. believe any subject matter should be off base. Right. The question is, what does the artist do with it? How does he look at it? How does he put it through his art in order to make a statement about it, in order to make it into either a commercial film or a serious film? I believe that in the case of a movie like Halloween, we can engage in that joy of filmmaking that you talk about. That's not the case with the other films that really address themselves to the lowest possible common denominator. Welcome to Episode 5 of Errors of Continuity, presented by the SLS Cast. Errors of Continuity is a topic-driven podcast geared toward the film industry and featuring in-depth discussion on topics ranging from filmmakers to the movies they make. This is part three of a three-part series on the Halloween film franchise. Today's episode will cover Rob Zombie's 2007 Halloween remake and his 2009 sequel, Halloween 2. Now that we've got that out of the way, welcome cinephiles and we hope you enjoy the show. Your Errors of Continuity host is Tim from the SLS cast. I am Tim. And joining the conversation today, a new addition to our Halloween movie franchise chat. All the way from the capital of the Sun Belt, the man with the sultry voice that'll buckle the knees of any stout soldier of the Korean People's Army, my co-host from the SLS cast, Matt. Greetings, Tim. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm okay. I, I, I really kind of wish I knew how to say, you know, hello in North Korean or something so that I could uh, prove my sultriness to melt the hearts of the North Korean army. Would you like to give it a shot? Um, I, how, about, how about greetings, North Koreans, from your favorite American bastard? Indeed. Well, that's what they call us. We're, we're, all, <laughs> we're all American bastards. That's what they call us. So I'm just trying to be their favorite American bastard. Yeah, you can be dotard dose. Right? <laughs> Dotardos. <laughs> it's not just a dosy do. It's a dotard dose. Matt, you are joining the episode covering the last half, the conclusion of the Halloween franchise, the Rob Zombie movies. True. Before we jump into all this, I must ask you, what was and when was your first introduction to the Halloween series of movies? Oh, goodness gracious. 
probably about Halloween four ish, like Return of Michael Myers. Um, yeah, somewhere between uh, Halloween four and Halloween five. Uh, they had actually started putting them on late night TV. Of course, they were, you know, it was back when they, uh, back when they still did like the flag waving thing and the like that you would hear America the Beautiful at 2 a.m. when the stations would go off the air. Um, yeah, back in TV land, folks. Um, the late, late, late movie would usually be like a heavily pared down version of some form or fashion of horror movie. And um some friends of mine were like, "Oh, let's watch this movie." And I and I don't remember which one it was, probably the first or the second Halloween movie. Uh and that was like my very first introduction to that. Didn't really get into it uh much beyond that uh, because I started kind of getting into as we've talked about before, I uh, started kind of getting into Freddy, got in, got more into uh, Friday the 13th and stuff. Uh, and it really wasn't until H2O came around that I actually sat down and watched, really and truly sat down and watched any of the movies. And, and it started with uh, the DVD release of Halloween uh, H2O. So I kind of was like, no, nah, this isn't right. I need to, I need to go back to the beginning. And from there, I actually watched them. And it was interesting. I never went and I never went and watched Resurrection. You're you're not missing out on too much. <laughs> the only thing you're missing out on is Buster Rhymes. Trick or treat, motherfucker. Oh, that's Period. hilarious. And Katie Sackhoff is in it. So I guess if you're oh, that hey, big of a Katie Sackhoff fan. Yeah. No, I, due to life and scheduling and all that kind of stuff, I didn't even go back and watch the original Halloween movies or anything. I just committed myself to rewatching the Rob Zombie remakes and reading some articles, making sure I got my background right, uh, some comparisons between the original Halloween and Halloween 2 versus their respective remakes and whatnot. So, Well, this is exciting because on the SLS cast, over the years we've covered the franchises of Freddy Krueger, Friday the 13th, Mm -hmm. This one is very interesting because going back and rewatching all the classics, classic Halloween, the classic Halloween movies are pretty tame when you compare them to they are. Freddy and, and Jason. And I wanted to ask you, out of the classic series of movies, and that includes H2O in my book, do you have a favorite? I don't know if John Carpenter's uh, is your favorite or not, but other than that one, I guess, do you have a favorite? Uh, just from the original Halloween series, you mean? Yeah, yeah, up until Resurrection, but you didn't see Resurrection. Correct, yeah, I have. I, I cannot uh, make a claim on Resurrection. Uh, and from what I'm hearing, especially now, that's probably a good thing. Honestly, <laughs> I would probably go with four. Okay. Is my, is probably my favorite. And, and here's, and, and here's why. Remember, I didn't come into Halloween really and truly until later on. And so by the time I got around to watching Halloween, it the tameness, as it were, um, it, the movie for me was a little boring. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. I appreciate it for what it was. Um, it wasn't a super huge critical hit back then. There were people who were a lot more interested in what John Carpenter was trying to put up on the screen and the themes behind it. Um, 
and and those things are recognized and you know regardless of whether or not he meant to he basically established the rules of slasher movies for the next 30 years so scream notwithstanding hey we got to give props where they're due but they're they're kind of boring and then halloween 3 was just kind of like i don't even know what the fuck they were doing um so uh, which is true i mean if you look at it because when the way halloween and halloween 2 play out they are designed to be yeah a self-contained story and so halloween 3 you're just kind of like what i mean they're literally like well what the fuck does this have to do with anything so when they bring back Michael Myers, yes, this was at the time when they're also um, attempting to finally kill off Freddy. Um, and they're also figuring out new and creative ways to bring Jason back. So like to New York. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, the sewer monsters. Uh, how fun. <laughs> See, I remember last year. So for me, this one was where they kind of like really injected some fun into it and, and gave the thrills and the screams and, and really kind of gave, um, gave the audiences what they wanted in terms of some real slasher action. And then of course, bringing the idea, bringing back the figure, right? The shape as Michael Myers is originally known, like the actual phantom being that is michael myers was originally known as the shape um which i'm sure you guys already know because obviously we're on the third episode of this but (laughs) (laughs) but you're getting that have you not listened to him yet (laughs) the first episode was posted two weeks ago man i'm so far behind dude i'm so sorry (laughs) i'm so sorry but uh no but seriously so so you're finally getting back into that and i think that that's what for me makes return of michael myers i think probably my favorite halloween h2o is nice because of the return of Jamie Lee Curtis and everything like that. And I like how they were trying to put the familial aspect to it and everything and really kind of ratchet that tension up. And I think for what it was at the time that it was, I think it worked well. But now that we've got a, a whole body of work to look at and a reimagining by Rob Zombie, 20 years later kind of feels a little unnecessary. I, I do respect it, though. It's, it's, it is good, but yeah. After all that, Halloween 4. Well, now that we're caught up with what Matt thinks about the original series of Halloween flicks, we have, I don't want to say we have a lot of ground to cover because we have two movies to talk about here. Especially since the second movie is going to be really short for both of us, I think. Because of Rob Zombie and his movies, it calls for a lot of discussion. And we'll get into that momentarily. But first, I just want to say that over the course of the two previous episodes... Harry joined me to discuss the eight flicks in the original Halloween film franchise, as well as their backstories, influences, the fluctuating involvement of various people, including Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, and the changes in quality and substance in each of those flicks over the course of 22 years. Beginning with the release of John Carpenter's Halloween, jumpstarting the slasher genre in 1978, and ending with the release of 1988's Halloween Resurrection in 2002. On Errors of Continuity, Episode 5, Matt and I will discuss the two Rob Zombie flicks released in 2007 and 2009 to negative reviews from both critics and fans alike. And that goes for both of them, not just one of them, but both of them. People liked one more than the other, 
but technically both of them. In 2005, Rob Zombie released The Devil's Rejects, which was a 70s retro-style film about a psychopathic family on the run from the law, which became his first movie to be loved by genre fans and to earn the respect of critics, mostly due to the interesting characters and the dark satire within the film. You know, I trust that fucker Charlie about as much as I trust you. Where the hell do you get off talking shit about Charlie? Hey, I know what I know, and I know I don't like that nutsack. Well, unless you got a better suggestion, I suggest you keep your fucking pie holes shut. That is the only remotely safe place I know about. Uh, hey man, if anyone's interested, I think I'm gonna be wanting some ice cream in about 10 miles. Hey man, I think I'm gonna be wanting some ice cream in about 10 miles. Don't just fucking imitate me, it's fucking rude. I know what I know, and I know I don't like that nutsack. Fuck you. Fuck you. Two fucking seconds for the kid, is that gonna kill you? Yes, it is gonna kill me. I have calculated the time, and two seconds is the exact amount of time that's a hazard to my fucking health. <laughs> Come on, don't be such a fucking drag, I'm starving. Hey, eat this. What is your fucking problem? I'm in and out in two seconds. You know, I think I'm gonna get me some tootie fucking fruity. Tootie fucking fruity, that sounds good. Tootie fucking fruity. Shut up. Tootie fucking fruity. It was announced in 2006 that Rob Zombie would write, direct, produce, and be the music coordinator for the next Halloween installment. Upon the news, Zombie respectfully reached out to the maestro John Carpenter about remaking his classic. And during that conversation, Carpenter told Zombie to, quote, make it his own, end quote. Although there's been a little bit of dispute about that because Zombie originally came out and said that Carpenter was very cold towards him and didn't want to talk about Zombie touching the movie. So I'm really not too sure who to... Well, actually, I, I think personally I'll side with John Carpenter because he's not one to bullshit because of how direct and frank he is. You asked me about uh, Rob Zombie's yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I would say nice things about him, but you know, we did this, uh, I thought it was, it was gonna be a real cool deal for the, the History Channel, the Biography Channel, whatever that is, they, they were gonna do about Halloween. I thought, ooh, that's pretty cool. Until I noticed that they did one on Caddyshack. And I thought, wow, <laughs> what is this? Anyway, they interviewed him on that, on that biography and channel, and he lied about me. He said I was very cold to him when he, told me I was going to, and that he was going to make it. Nothing could be further from the truth. I said, make it your own movie, man. You know, this is yours now. Don't worry about me. I was incredibly supportive. Why that piece of shit lied, I don't know. <laughs> he had no reason to. Why did he do it? So, frankly, uh, that will color my response to the film. Overall, Zombie, what he wanted to do with his remake, with his version, his interpretation, is that he wanted to reinvent the Michael Myers character because he felt that Michael Myers became all too familiar with audiences. Along with the likes of Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees, they became a staple in pop culture. Therefore, his approach would be to take a deeper look into how Michael became a psychopath and what influenced him at such an early age. Tonight's brutal murders 
was described by police as Manson-like in its viciousness. Three people brutally murdered and a 10-year-old boy being held in custody. You haven't said a word for 15 years. This summer, Rob Zombie unleashes a unique vision of a legendary tale. Listen, be careful tonight. A lot of nutcases come out on Halloween. Boogeyman real? Why are you so obsessed with the boogeyman, Tommy? Halloween night, the boogeyman attacks kids you don't believe. Oh no, Tommy! Boogeyman's gonna get me! I'm gonna cut that mask right off your face. He's come back for his baby sister. To do what? Michael, stop! So, Matthew, what is Rob Zombie's Halloween about? Well, okay. Um, it is it is truly a prequel and a reboot of the actual original Halloween film. And what the movie actually does is it takes the time. And, and uh, okay, so you're, you guys are about to meet the Rob Zombie apologist. Uh, just allow me to go ahead and throw that out there. What he does brilliantly in my opinion, is he basically takes you and puts you into a position where you, if you don't even at least partially understand Mike Myers, you may find yourself actually rooting for Mike Myers. And so he does this by putting you into a very, very, very white trash, generic white trash scenario. And the thing is, is that there are so many people, and everybody knows people like this, that behave the way this family behaves. Extremely dysfunctional, you know, perv stepdad, stripper mom, who, you know, heart of gold, loves her kids. But, I mean, let's face it, this is basically just not a great situation all the way around. Um, you know, you've got uh, William Forsyth who is just absolutely amazing as the derelict human, uh, you know, scum that is this kind of, not, not really father figure, but basically the only thing they have in the realm of a father figure that's sitting in there. And of course he's kind of written as this impotent, you know, piece of crap kind of thing who is lecherous and abusive. Um, we have, of course, Michael, who is introduced as someone who has literally two distinct sides. And you see him where he takes his loving rat, Elvis, and then you see that he's got a mask. And when the mask comes on, all of a sudden... His pet is dead. It's very subtle, very simple. And you're kind of like, wait a minute, what's happening? But they don't give you enough time to focus on that yet because they want to make sure that you see that Michael is a human being. And so we have Michael come downstairs and here we are trying to eat breakfast and everything. He's got his sister uh, there. And then, of course, the baby and mom and, you know, piece of shit are still fighting. But throughout it all, we have got this kid who 
as fucked up as it is, at least has a mother that loves him. And when you move forward throughout Michael's day, now we move him to school and you see that he is bullied at school and everybody hates the bully and everybody wants the bully to get his comeuppance. And then you move along and it's just very simple pacing. As soon as we move away from that, then you've got this next switch where now that he's getting talked to by the principal and the principal calls the mom down. Of course, she's there sticking up for his son or sticking up for her son, but it's kind of hard to explain away dead animals in the backpack and everything. Right. Um, and so now you're seeing the disturbed nature that is Michael, but at the same time, he's sitting there not really looking like someone who is going to do these terrible things and is doing these horrible things to these animals. And then he sees the writing on the wall and he moves away and backs away and he goes off. And what's the next thing that we see him do? He beats the fucking piss and presumably kills. But as far as we know, just leaves, uh, you know, for dead. The bully. And yet, everybody's kind of like, man, you, you wanted to be that guy. You want to see that bully get his come up. And so you don't quite feel how, you know, bad you should feel that Michael has basically just kind of, you know, beat the piss and possibly killed another kid. But again, it's because he does the switch with the mask. He puts the mask on that literally sheds the humanity that he has. And we go back again. And then what does his mom tell him? So now he's back sitting at home and his mom is like, tomorrow starts a new life. Things are going to change starting tomorrow. And what happens? It's Halloween. He's told that his sister is going to take him out to a trick or treating. Her boyfriend comes over. They commence to fucking, uh, you've got the drunk, you know, stepfatherish guy again William Forsyth and what's in his brain what is in Michael Myers's brain tomorrow starts a new life and so for him it's like well this it's the solution is simple let's let's put the mask on and then we can start our new life and then I won't need the mask anymore and yet it's that simple childish behavior that kid logic that starts him inadvertently down this irre irretrievably dark path and of course yes he kills the sister he kills the boyfriend he kills the stepdad um, and then what does he do he takes the mask off he puts the butcher knife on the counter and he takes his baby as we come to find out of course sister and goes outside and sits down. Why? Because tomorrow starts their new life. And when you see, and then when you make the shift into the hospital setting, where you find out that it was the most expensive trial ever, and now he's going to be put in this mental situation, you know, in this mental hospital. And, of course, we have Malcolm McDowell, who, regardless of the people who didn't like the movies even the critics thought that Malcolm McDowell did a man, just a fantastic job as Loomis he's coming in and he at least in the beginning 
seems like he legitimately cares. He like he's trying to figure out what is going on with this guy. You've got people like Danny Trejo who it starts out as a janitor and he legitimately cares. He's kind of weird, but you know, he at least legitimately cares for Michael all the time while Michael doesn't remember what happened because he was wearing the mask. And it's only when he starts to actually understand the hopelessness of his situation that he gives up on the existence of Michael Myers and falls into the acceptance of the mask. And it's when that mask comes on, that's when the darkness really falls. And then you still, but you still are kind of pulling for this kid. You're pulling for him because even then, the next time he kills somebody is a nurse who clearly hates him and puts him down. Well, that that baby clearly can't be related to you. And again, it's the trigger. It's the trigger right there that sends him on that spiral. And again, he inadvertently, you know, puts too much pressure and it causes his mother to kill himself, kill herself. And it basically causes Loomis to eventually quit. But at that point, that's it. The mask is on and the mask won't come off. And now you have set up and completely sold that Michael Myers is no longer this child. He's no longer this kid. He is just this thing. He is, as was traditionally noted, the shape. And it's not until you get to the point where he's about to break out of prison, because they even continue to twist and set up by putting the hillbillies back in. Now, Rob Zombie gets a lot of shit for his hillbilly action. And the thing is, is that hillbilly kind of stuff, it's a trope. And these, and he was very smartly using the trope, not because it was just something that you put into the movie to, to do it. It's because the way he uses the hillbilly trope gives you some kind of small precipice with which to stand. And you've got just this little tiny bit of hope to say, wow, I hate these fucking people. And what happens to the people we don't like? Every time in a horror movie, there's people that we don't like. We kind of want them to die. And of course, these hicks, these hillbillies do get their comeuppance. And you're still not mad. You're still not mad because, well, what the fuck? They're raping people in the fucking cells. So now we've got Mikey's escaping and he's killing everybody. And of course, you know, he's just trying to get out. But who is it that he kills? And at that point, you say, oh, shit, it just got real. He kills literally the only person left who legitimately cared about him. He kills Danny Trejo. And from that point on to throughout the rest of the movie, he's just a psychopath. And, and that's just it. Zombie got you to feel bad for a psychopath for 37 minutes. Out of a two-hour movie, if you're watching the director's cut. You then switch back over, and now we're back with Laurie Strode, who has grown up in the complete, most wonderful, idyllic family situation, unknown. She doesn't know who she is or where she came from. Uh, it's honestly unclear if she even knows whether or not she's adopted. And she is truly a good person so 
even though Mike, you know, did this terrible thing that started him on this dark path, he inadvertently saved his sister and she becomes a good person. And we watch as she goes through regular teenage shenanigans and her friends are there. And of course, the friends are, you know, typical high school sexy girls who want to go out and have their fun and have their sex with their boyfriends and everything, which of course creates your typical stere you know, your typical tropes in the slasher films of why these people need to need to go, right? Because remember the rules in Scream, right? If they're if they're flashing their tits, they're gonna die. Um and yet, they also manage to do things uh, like when, um, oh, uh, when Linda and her boyfriend go, and these are also things that mirror certain aspects of the original '78 film. And so you've got these great little throwbacks that some people argue are were studio driven, but. I don't think they were. I think they were basically just to make sure that the foundation was still there for you to understand that this is a remake. Uh, but at the same time, give you something that is, you know, feasible for putting Mike where he needs to be. He's moving and trying to get back to his sister. Um, and so... Linda, her friend Linda dies. Ultimately, her friend Annie is attacked and her boyfriend uh, dies. And this, of course, is occurring while Lori is actually trying to babysit. And at the time that this is all going down, her parents have already been killed. This is, I mean, and it, and then again, and now it plays out. You've also, of course, uh, while all this is going on in the background, you also have Loomis, who has been... Uh, pulled back in by the facility that, uh, Mike is, has, Michael has escaped from. And he's like, oh shit, he's, he's going back home. And so now he's trying to track down everything and see what's going on. And of course, he ends up meeting up with Annie's dad, who is, uh, played by Brad Dourif. Fantastic role for Brad Dourif, by the way. Um, and he, because Brad Dourif's character is Sheriff Brackett. Right. Remember Annie, Annie Brackett. So this is, you know, you've got yet this other wonderful little tangible tie. They're trying to track down and hunt Michael Myers. And it turns out that when Michael's mom killed herself, Sheriff Brackett, then not a sheriff, was the one who was the first person on the scene who actually took Lori away. Because, by God, he was going to give this poor girl a chance. Fast forward a little bit through the rest of the film, and then you've got... It's basically Michael trying to get back to his sister, and he eventually succeeds. She, of course, doesn't understand, even to the point where Michael finally relents, even in the mask, and he relents... And kind of loses the mask aspect for a moment and provides the picture of him and her as a child and a baby, respectively. And she doesn't understand. And what does she do? She goes and she go she stabs him. She stabs him right down the which then of course gets to the whole, you know, inability to kill like this unstoppable machine. And we get to carry out the rest of the film. Where Loomis, Loomis eventually catches up, uh, Sheriff is trying to rescue his daughter, and 
they go back and forth. Loomis is going to shoot Michael Myers in, in the pool. And whereas in the original movie, he shoots six times in the chest or whatever. This time it's like three or four shots in the back. Um, and so they go back and forth until eventually Lori finds herself trapped up in the house. Michael runs at her. They fall out over and land onto the lawn. And she just takes the gun and pulls the trigger until it goes click. And, of course, it's a revolver, and it's just going click, click, click as the as the police are closing in. And then, all of a sudden, Michael's hand reaches up and grabs her wrist while she pulls the trigger. And then, finally, the gun goes off. She screams her head off, and it basically cuts back to that picture of brother and sister as a happy boy and a happy baby. Roll credits. Over a seemingly happy childhood, interspersed in one-second shots of Michael Myers. It's a fantastic movie! It's fucking good! I wish you made this movie, because I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'm not a fan of these movies. I do like the first one, more so than the second one, but how you described it, I can get behind that. In my mind, and I'm going to throw it out here right now, Matt has seen both the unrated cuts of both movies and the theatrical cuts of both movies. I've only seen the unrated cuts, and I've watched them for the first time over the course of the past two days. So, like, I mean, I've only seen them just recently, after even going back and rewatching all the original movies. I'm not one that's going to be jaded by the original and hold that over, you know, the remakes or whatnot. I would never do that. Honestly, Rob Zombie had good intentions and very interesting ideas that if executed differently, the movie could have been something terrifying. But unfortunately, I think Rob Zombie is his own worst enemy because every single one of his movies... Even with 31, like, whenever the movies are just, like, all-out gore, and this movie really isn't that gory, even the unrated version, the director's cut or whatever, is not gory, really, and I appreciated that, the restraint, because it seemed like he was wanting to focus more on the character. But when it comes to adding drama to his movies, or any dramatic element, or any bit of sentimentality, anything like that, it's so overdone and so forced, and unfortunately... When he's taking the time, in the version I watched, a two-hour time frame to tell you a story in detail how this young boy became a lunatic, you know, a psychopath, a lot of drama should go into it. A lot of drama and a lot of horrific elements. Because if you're going to show what is tormenting this child, you have to go into all that stuff. And he does in a way, but he goes so over the top. So over the top with the dialogue, with these characters, with the nudity, with, you know, what he introduces rape. So over the top. And what he is trying to do, I appreciate. And I like that. But he just can never fully execute those thoughts and those ideas in a meaningful way. Now, I'm not saying, and this is more for the second one, 
I'm not saying the gore looks good, you know, because, I mean, when we watch the Jason movies, I think I pretty much ranked the Jason movies based on the death scenes. But this movie isn't trying to be like that. The essence of it, the first one at least, it's trying to be something more, you know, to be something a little different, something a little heartier and meatier with grit and depth. And I do ultimately appreciate that because it's clear that he's trying to do something, but it's a misfire. Well, at one point I had this idea that uh, was a big commitment that nobody really wanted to do is I thought that there's really two movies I could have made. Young Michael leading up to him returning to Haddonfield in, in part one and then pick up part two. But um, yeah, no, it wasn't really till after the fact that really I thought that, you know, before you make the movie, you don't know. You know, I didn't know. Would that be a compelling movie to watch Young Michael for the whole movie? But when I was done, I was like, geez, man, it was. I was totally, I found like, um, you, know, you know, Dag as Young Michael Myers was totally compelling and that easily could have been a whole movie in itself. Well, I tried to break it down in my mind and I don't know if it exactly comes out this way, but I thought, you know, probably act one, about a half an hour of Young Michael, act two, about a half an hour-ish of, uh, you know, Smith's Grove Sanitarium with Young Michael turning into adult Michael and then the last third of the film would be Haddonfield was sort of how I conceived it in my mind as I was you know writing the script Rob Zombie's remake was released on August 31st 2007 with a budget of 15 million dollars the U.S. domestic box office took in 58.2 million dollars its worldwide gross was 80.2 million dollars a couple things I want to do is, is some uh, comparisons and callbacks with and to the original film. The first thing I noticed right off the bat, character-wise, is Michael Myers. And Matt, I wanted to ask you, Michael Myers is significantly larger in this film. He is. W- what did you think of that? Was it distracting? Was it were they trying to was he trying to blatantly make him out to be a monster or what? I think in order to differentiate in order to fully separate the boy from the man, we've got, and also to give credence to the idea that this is the unstoppable force, you've got to go a little bit larger than life. And I think that that is literally what they did when they cast Tyler Maine. Well, how I got the job was I was up in Canada, in Vancouver, getting ready to talk to producers about another picture, and my phone rang. And it was Rob Zombie, and I just did the Devil's Rejects with him, and you know, Rob Zombie calls your phone, you kind of pick it up, right? Just to see what the hell he's going to say. So he goes, what are you doing? Uh, I want you to do my next movie. I said, what is it? It's Halloween. I said, oh, Jesus, Rob, I do not want to wear a hockey mask in a movie. Fuck. (laughs) Right? Right? Yeah, that's how much I knew about horror films at the time. Let me tell you what I want to do. And he explained how they want to do a backstory and make Michael Myers be a product of his environment. And, and he wanted me to take it to the next level and not just be a one-dimensional killer going like this. I said, okay, so I do get to kill a lot of people though, right? And he said, yes, whatever way you'd like to kill them. I said, okay, I'm in. I mean, you have to, I mean, this is a huge, huge guy. Okay, um, he was, he's a former professional wrestler. Uh, he was also in, uh, the original X-Men movie. He was Sabretooth. He was Ajax in the movie Troy. So, I mean, this is a guy who's, I mean, been around for a while in the world of movies as a really buff guy. 
I personally, that, that kind of leads you to think, holy crap, unstoppable. While I think it could be fair to argue, well, how the hell did he get that big, right? I mean, if you know you're trying to make logical leaps, that might be a misfire for some people. But for me, I think it also really puts the final nail in the coffin in terms of there is no little boy anymore. It is just this unstoppable killing machine. So I, I was I was fine with the casting. I liked the look. Yeah. See, with me, I think it was just a little too obvious in trying to, it, I guess, establish that. And, th- I mean, that's another Rob Zombie way of thinking. And I don't like, I, I don't want to, I mean, I know it sounds like I'm crapping on him because I kind of am. But that, to me, he is probably one of the top my top frustrating directors because I watch a trailer for his movie and I'm interested. I look at the promotional material and I'm very interested. I like the look and, and just the, the grittiness, but it's all about like, th- there's no real, like he has these ideas, but he just doesn't put any depth behind it other than just showing you it, I guess. And at, at least that's how I saw that. Um, other characters here, we have Dr. Loomis. I know, Matt, you uh, are a fan of this portrayal of Dr. Loomis. I personally thought that... I mean, he worked in this one because you sh- you see Dr. Loomis working with young Michael in the sanitarium and trying to help him out. He's, he's quite dickish in this one and pompous and full of himself. He does wear a really distracting hairpiece um, to show you how young he is. And I, I guess this is another thing that parallels the, in, in a way, showing you bigger or older Michael, him being this giant, is with Dr. Loomis to show you that he's 15 years younger. They gave Roddy McDowell, um, did I call him Roddy McDowell, um, Malcolm McDowell, long, straight, long hair. Um, and it, it it was just a little too hokey and all around, even with Lori, who I didn't give a crap about Lori, you're giving so you're, 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 you're given so much character. You're taken, it takes away from what the story is at its core and the original Halloween and the only reason why I'm bringing this up and making straight comparisons is because with this first one, it is completely obvious that it is, it's it's an homage to the original Halloween, not really, not necessarily a homage to the original Halloween, but it is a remake. There are so many elements from the first film, including the music, the scoring throughout is very much John Carpenter's scoring. Um, it's shot in Pasadena in the same neighborhood that the first one was shot in. The second half of the movie is pretty much the uh, is pretty much John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, everything from the costume using the same mask, all of these things are directly pulled from John Carpenter's Halloween. That I I I wanted to see. Um, that when he deviates in such a drastic way with Lori, 
with these characters that you, at least me, didn't really care for, don't really care for, because either A, their dialogue isn't um, believable. I mean, that was what was so great about Deborah Hill's dialogue when she wrote the dialogue for the girls in the original movie is that it was believable in a way, at least 1970s believable. I mean, yeah, they talked about boys and stuff, but I mean, come on. I mean, normal girls don't uh, don't talk like this. And that is what was ultimately missing with Lori, who with Lori you need that character to root for, to feel bad for, especially the transition to the second movie when, you know, what happens to her, you know, you really got to be there because it's an you know, it's supposed to be this emotional feeling not only because of what happens to the character, but how it's shot and executed in or and uh not because of how it's shot, but because how it's played out on screen on the screen. Um, so it's important to like Lori, but it's also important to understand why Dr. Loomis is all about stopping Michael Myers. And I owe this to Harry for uh, bringing this up uh, on the last episode, but he thought it was, or actually when uh, to Harry who brought this up in uh, the first episode, the, the beginning of talking about this film series, is that it's very interesting seeing how Dr. Loomis and Michael Myers are really two characters that, in a way, parallel each other. Michael Myers is a killer that just kills. He's after his sister. Um, with this movie, I, I one huge plus to this movie is that they don't start off with a mystery. It's not a mystery that Michael Myers is after a sister. You know pretty much right off the bat that Lori is this baby and he's off to find her and either kill her or do something. You're not exactly entirely too sure. Um, but then Dr. Loomis is also supposed to be obsessed with the idea of stopping Michael Myers and you never fully get that. Because, really, that is the story. Like, those are the characters. Those are, those are the two core, grounded characters. And it's not like you realize this with Dr. Loomis over the course of eight movies, or six, the six movies that he, or the five movies that he's in, but you get the sense of that with the first two movies. And, again, with Halloween 2, which we'll get into, you know... Uh, officially momentarily uh, you you just never get that sense at all he's just kind of disconnected and in the movie because it seemed like rob zombie wanted malcolm mcdowell in the movie um so matt i mean you so you did like laurie like you did, did you feel connected to her or any of her friends in a way or or do you not think about those characters in that sort well, of no, way? I mean okay I think the problem was that they kind of overplayed the teenage card a little bit right yeah instead of behaving like you know some goofy slightly randy teenage girls they were kind of acting like uh goofy way overly horny teenage boys with the exception of Lori clearly also the girl who played uh Annie Brackett Danielle Harris was fucking 30 in that movie, okay? The girl who plays the sheriff's daughter was 30 in that movie. Can you believe that shit? Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I had no idea. Oh, wow. <laughs> How about that? So it made it kind of easier. Uh, and, and, I, and again, I think with as heavy-handed as the rest of the movie was uh, in terms of what it was trying to drive home, 
as kind of the story of Michael Myers, uh, being so diametrically opposed to what he created in Laurie. Um, yeah, I think, I think it was, I, I think it was meant to be something so that's like, okay, we're going to paint this part and make it really, really easy. You know, paint by numbers here. Really, you know, really stupid Randy girl is going to get killed. Uh, not quite as Randy, but definitely bad influence girl is going to get a little something, something. And then we have Lori, who's clearly, you know, the, the virginal model here. Um, so I didn't mind that. Uh, I, I didn't mind that aspect at all. It made it easy to uh, like Lori, and yet at the same time, she was also someone who was just as kind of goofy as everybody else. But uh, it is what it is. So I did enjoy one of the callbacks, though, from the first movie when the uh, I think it's Annie. No, it's Linda's boyfriend. Get me another beer. You get it. I'm the one that just did all the heavy lifting. All right, I'll go. <laughs> so seriously, on a scale from one to ten, seven five. How about <gasps> zero? Well, like, zero. Like zero plus eleven. <laughs> he puts on the ghost outfit, and then of course Michael runs into him and stabs him. Yeah, I love that. I actually had forgotten. I was thinking about that um, after I was, or as I was watching the movie, and I'm like, because um, my buddy Mike um, has had these on Blu-ray for me, so I just ran over to his house over the weekend and grabbed them. And I'm sitting there watching him, I'm like, the the blade is literally not long enough for him to have been impaled against the wall. And so I'm just sitting there going, what the shit? And I actually went back because I couldn't remember. And I looked it up. And sure enough, that's literally, he impales the guy in the first movie, too, and leaves him hanging on the wall. And I'm like... But with a butcher knife, though. Right, like, both I times. I think the knife is significantly longer. No, no. I mean, oh. they're, yeah, they're both they're both chef's knives. I mean, or whatever, butcher's oh. knife or whatever. Neither time would the knife be long enough to do that. Like, uh, you know, so... Okay, that's fine. It was a good callback, but I'm like, ah, come on. But that's not even the part of the callback that I like, because I think that, well, that moment I preferred in the original one. Because in the original movie, all of a sudden Michael, uh, you know, shows up wearing the sheet, and I think he even has the glasses on also. You know, so I, I thought it was interesting showing how and why Michael Myers puts on the sheet to look like a ghost. But ultimately, it just really doesn't work for Rob Zombie's movie because, even though I appreciated the callback, because since the movie is trying to treat Michael Myers like a deranged lunatic without a sense of humor or wit, it just really doesn't necessarily work. And it doesn't necessarily work in John Carpenter's movie either, but at least there's somewhat of a character in a way to establish with Michael Myers because, again, this is another hairy thing that he pointed out two episodes ago. Where after he stabs the guy in the gut, and there's that beautiful shot. Man, technically, John Carpenter's Halloween is, man, technically, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. And I think that's one of the reasons why it holds up so well today. is because it looks great, uh, and the lighting is fantastic. Is that whenever Michael stabs the guy and he's hanging there, he just kind of looks at him for a moment, cocks his head to the side, and he looks kind of like a curious puppy dog. He just doesn't fully comprehend where this one, it seems like he does, in a way. I think ultimately John Carpenter himself explained it best when he was asked about the Rob Zombie remake, where he says, quote, 
it took away the mystique of the story by explaining too much about Michael Myers. I don't care about that. He's supposed to be a force of nature. He's supposed to be almost supernatural. And he was too big. It just wasn't normal. End quote. That's him commenting on the size. And personally, I thought that the remake lacked the nuance and the style that the original had. Lastly, the thing that I want to ask you, Matt, to close up the first movie. So you didn't think all that backstory was too much? Or do you think they could have kept some of the backstory, but maybe not as much. Because again, I've only seen the, the director's cut, and I know that the theatrical cut is like 20 minutes shorter. So I don't, I don't know what's different between the two. Yeah, they definitely cut down on a lot of the stuff that happens in the um, post-trial. And then, of course, they do a lot, they, they basically do a lot of extending shots. The direct, the, the unrated cut, I want to say, is like nine and a half minutes longer or something like that. Oh. Psych, not 20 minutes. Right. <laughs> the director's cut for the second one, though, that one is definitely, that's like 14 or 15 minutes longer. So you're, you really are getting a whole lot more in the second movie. So, yeah. All I, I, I don't know. I, I get that, uh, you know, I'm the only one who liked it. I really think, though, that this movie is a lot more, has a lot more audience approval than people like to give it credit for. It did as well as it did because it was a decent movie. And I think that, yes, it also got a lot of name recognition, and certainly it was critically panned. But the first one didn't do so hot in terms of critics either. So Well, it was different also. I mean, it picked up steam. Back then, it was considered a drive-in exploitation movie and all exploitation movies at the time were looked down upon so when people were reviewing this movie weren't really paying attention to the movie to the original halloween whereas it took roger ebert to come out and not only give the movie four stars but give it a, a fantastic review and a couple other high profile critics came out in favor of it that's when people decided to go back or ended up going back and revisiting it which over time, critics changed their opinion or, you know, whenever people went back and looked back on it, it got more favorable reviews. I think the circumstances are a little bit different, critics-wise, between these two movies. You're a little exhausted after making the first one, so I yes. kind of made you want to march forward for number two. I don't know. I'm a demented individual, I think, uh, <laughs> because it, didn't, it wasn't any easier than the first one. But um, basically, I... I Time heals all wounds, and enough time went by and I forgot, and about a year and a half after I had said no more, I started thinking like, well, I would like to go back and do more, because I feel like there's so much more to be done with those characters that I didn't get to scratch the surface with in the first one, since the first one was sort of a, you know, 50% of it was a retelling of John Carpenter's movie, I thought, well, to go back and 100% do something different would be pretty exciting. I killed him. I killed him. Who'd you kill, sweetie? Who'd you kill? I killed him. Come on. He's dead. He's dead. You've witnessed the birth of evil. Are you a giant? Now, the secret behind his madness will finally be revealed. Only a river of blood. Bring us together again. Evil 
is here. I know he's not going to come back just because of some stupid holiday. This summer, only one movie will get your adrenaline pumping and your heart racing. There's blood everywhere. From director Rob Zombie. This Friday, Michael Myers' sister. Discover the darkest secrets. Michael is more evolved. And experience the terrifying final chapter. Halloween 2. Rated R. The movie opens up with a fake intro, uh, which I was the best part of the movie for me. At the end of the first one, we all know she's covered with, uh, well, for those of you who actually saw the ending of the first one, she's covered with blood. She kills Michael. She ends up in a uh, hospital where she has all these surgeries going on. Lori Stone, I'm talking about. She gets all these surgeries. She has a cast. She's all this, yada, yada, yada. Suddenly, Michael Myers appears. And for the first 30 minutes of the movie, she's being attacked, tracked down, chased by Michael Myers to the hospital. Very much like the sequel, Halloween 2, how that one follows Halloween 1. But right when Michael finally gets to her and kills her, she wakes up and it's all a bad dream. It turns out she is living now with Sheriff Brackett and Annie Brackett in their country home in Illinois. As we know from the first one, from the remake, Lori's parents got killed for whatever fucking reason, but they got killed. So she's dealing with all this trauma brought on by the events of of, of the previous movie, And it turns out Michael is still alive and Rob Zombie, for whatever reason, decided to pull a psycho and now he sees his mother and his young self all dressed in white, basically guiding him along, coaching him to kill people and murder people and go and track down Lori for whatever kind of reason. And so we're left with a movie where, depending on which version of the movie you watched, Theatrical version, Michael dies for good, one thing leads to another, and Lori gets put into a sanitarium, into a psychiatric ward, where she smiles because she envi- she now envisions uh, Michael's mother and, and a young Michael, assuming that she is now cursed to become the next shape, if you will. Or if you've seen the unrated director's cut, she dies at the end of the movie. After Michael is dead, she dies. And then the movie cuts the same uh, scene when she's in the psychiatric ward. But then you get the sense that she has carried on to death. You know, she is in her, her subconscious depth, you know, seeing, I guess it would be her mother and young brother. Matt, what are your thoughts? All right. So everything that I liked about what Rob Zombie did with the first movie, um, he completely undoes in the second movie. Um, instead of just trying to build on the story and provide a, a reasonable expectation of how it could be that, um, that, 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 uh, Michael didn't die. Because if you actually take a look at the ending of the first movie, theatrical and director's cut, it doesn't matter. Um, when the shot goes off, her eyes are closed. So it is actually possible that she could have missed. Uh, she's also covered in blood and just screaming bloody murder. Um, and it's, and the cops are actually kind of enclosing in as the, as, as we fade off. So, there is enough plausible deniability to say that she didn't actually kill him. And then instead, yes, what we get is a whole brand new opening that's completely fucked up. Um, also, you, you, the immediate noticing is that they completely recast, um, 
uh, what's his, uh, D- uh, Dag Ferch, I guess, right? Um, uh, who is, who plays Michael Myers as a boy. And he had signed on, everything was good, but by the time they got ready to shoot, he had actually grown too much. And you know what? If that's the case, then you drop that. You just drop that because that's the first fucking problem is they've, the, you have recast the most critical component of your original movie. So, uh, and why? So you can have fantasy la la land that allows them to bring them together. Um, the hillbilly thing. So the hillbilly thing was, was just, was done just right in the first Halloween. In Halloween 2, it just looks like he's trying to do fuck, it now it looks like a fucking, uh, Rob Zombie trope. Which is something that he does in every fucking Rob Zombie movie. And things that we were bemoaning when we were watching 31, what have you. Um, everything just kind of becomes, he just took everything that made the first movie great and he completely shit on it. Um, we've got Michael Myers without his mask. We've got Michael Myers actually saying a fucking word. Granted, it's just one, but I don't care. That's one too many. Um, we've got, you know, all these different things, these huge components of watching the, the inner workings of Michael Myers' brain, um, that, just totally undo anything and everything that make Halloween great and made his remake so good. Now, when you contrast that against the uh, director's cut from the theatrical cut, something that was actually good out of Halloween 2 was the fact that they actually show Laurie losing her fucking mind. They don't do that in the theatrical cut. It, there is this kind of tonal shift for her. But it's like one year later and she's somewhat kind of like everything is pretty honky dory for the most part. Um, sure, I still have some bad dreams, but I'm kind of pretty cool. Um, and then, but in the director's cut, it is two years later and she is just a fucking wreck. And you see just the disintegration of her friendship with Annie and, uh, of course, uh, the sheriff. And you just kind of see this stuff fall apart. And that aspect of it was good, but it wasn't good enough to save the movie. Um, just very, very, very clearly, Zombie was trying too hard, in my opinion, to be artistic and at the same time do his Rob Zombie thing that it just comes off as looking half-assed and Rob Zombie tropes all over the place to the detriment of anything. This movie is not good. I um I was telling Tim, you know, I kind of liked this with the director's cut um versus the theatrical cut. I would have given the theatrical cut of Halloween 2 like a 1.75 and I think I could stomach giving the director's cut a 2.75. Okay, so I'm fine with people not liking the second Halloween movie, but goddamn, the first Halloween movie is good. And and that's where I land as a Rob Zombie apologist. Halloween 2 came out on August 28th of 2009 on a budget or with a budget of $15 million. The U.S. box office brought in $33.3 million in the worldwide box office. Intake was at a total of $39.4 million. That is a significant uh, uh, amount less than the previous worldwide box office of $80.2 million. And this, of course, was directed by fucking Rob Zombie. Originally, it was supposed to be directed by two French 
filmmakers. I don't know their names, but uh, yeah, it was supposed to be directed by two other guys. Rob Zombie originally did not want to make this movie because he was too tired after making the first one. But then after a year of rest, he decided to do this one. Um, so, you know, I... I mentioned earlier that I don't like Halloween Resurrection, but I'll tell you what, I enjoyed watching it because of how bad it was. And I'm willing to give, if I was going to, I don't like giving ratings, I don't, I, I don't want to give ratings on, uh, on errors of continuity, but if I was, just to make a point, and for my, for my point, or if, to make a point, um, but to make a point, I would give it, the first one, I'd probably give it a two and a half. Or maybe just a two. Between you know, two, two and a half. For the second one, I'd give this thing a one or below. <laughs> a one or under. Because unlike the first one, which I understood, I can see that Rob Zombie was trying to create something, was trying to do something meaningful even though he failed miserably. In my opinion, he failed miserably. With this one, it was just all-out gratuitous violence, gratuitous nudity that means absolutely nothing. And, I, I mean, they he introduces the hillbilly shit in this one. I hated it in the first one. My main, cons- my main reason, the reason why I didn't like it in either version, is because when you introduce awful characters... That we wish be that we wish would be mutilated by Michael Myers, like the uh, drunk hillbilly guards in the first one, and then now the two uh, uh, the two uh, 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 the ambulance drivers in in the second one. The first one you have you know the the workers are raping a, a woman, <laughs> raping a woman, um, and you see it you know. Um, in, in front of Michael Myers, you wish Michael Myers would just kill them. I mean, right off the bat, because you're building up so much character and so much meaningful depth to Michael Myers. Right now, I mean, he's really, he's not as bad as all these other people. And then when you start introducing gratuitous violence and gratuitous nudity and all of these elements and aspects that we've seen in, uh, that, that we would, uh, that you would normally find in your Friday the 13th movie, in your Jason movies, just doesn't fit in either of these movies, especially the second one. And that's what's frustrating, ultimately. Roger Ebert, I thought, said it, that, said it best when he said that violence or gratuitous violence works only if... Um, gratuitous violence doesn't work for the sake of showing you gratuitous violence. But when the violence is compelling... In a way, toward, uh, in in a way to where it enhances the story and the characters in a compelling way. It does. It is meaningful, and that's what he said about the first movie, because a lot of people were getting on him for liking it. With this one, I mean, it's it, it's too much 
for its own good. It's too much for what it's trying to do. And on top of that stuff, which is only kind of like the cherry on top, it's it's the frosting, it's the icing, the gratuitous violence and the or the gratuitous gore and the uh, in the in the um, in the nudity. Um, there's all uh, he does. Um, it, it there's also the character development that falls flat because on top of developing developing um, Lori so that her character works towards going psychotic herself, they're also introducing the psycho aspect for Michael Myers when he starts seeing his wife or when he starts seeing his mother and his young self, coaching him to do these awful things. So there are these two elements. And then behind all that is Dr. Loomis, who at the time during all this is going on, the anniversary, the second anniversary, or I forget how many years it's been since the events of the first movie, he releases this book. So now he's going through this crisis of realizing that he is an asshole to where he randomly pops up at the very end of the movie out of retribution, you know, pretty much having himself killed out of, you know, retribution or something. And it's just, it's just forced. And then you have the forced sentiment like when Sheriff Lee Brackett finds his daughter Annie slaughtered in their house, closer to the end of the movie. The movie pulls one of those gladiator things with the music, you know. The the, the choral, the, the female-led choral music in the background, you know. And the home video flashbacks of the young Annie, his daughter, as you're really supposed to give a shit about what just happened. I mean, really, that only, really, the only thing that's missing is someone walking through an endless field of wheat in slow motion. And then that would be your perfect gladiator scene for this movie. So it's a lot of forced sentiment, a lot of forced emotional crap that it just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't work. Um,. I mean, I could go again and I, I mean, I, I could talk again about the unrealistic characters and the dialogue and how everything is over the top and exaggerated for the sake of being over the top and exaggerated. I mean, ultimately or honestly, I think maybe this movie would have worked. Maybe this entire series would have worked if it was completely Rob Zombie's own movie and stayed completely away from tasting those aspects that made the original so great. And if this wasn't a Halloween movie, but something different, or it was a Halloween movie, but completely different, <laughs> you know, then, then maybe, you know, then maybe uh, we would have, maybe I'd get behind it more, or, 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 uh, or take things as they come, I, I, I guess. Because, yeah, yeah. I didn't care for this one too much, if you didn't catch that one already. Before we end, it has been announced that they will be making a sequel, another Halloween sequel, with Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, Danny McBride and David Gordon Green are writing the script. I don't know if David Gordon Green is going to be directing the movie or not, but John Carpenter is heavily heavy it's he's heavily involved um heavily involved not heavenly um 
and it's supposed to take place after the events of the original second movie. Despite H2O taking place after the events of the second movie, all that got fucked up with Halloween Resurrection. Are you interested in seeing another Jamie Lee Curtis Halloween movie? <laughs> I don't know. She she only does them every 20 years now. <laughs> it, it was 20 it's been 20 years since the last one. I mean, you know that she was in. So you know, she does one, she does two. She doesn't come back till 1998 for, for 20 years later. And now we're gearing up. And by the time it gets done, it'll be 2018. So then it's like 40 years later. What is she? It, it, how short is it going to be a short film? Is she going to be dying in the nursing home and he just comes in and unplugs the machine? I don't, I mean, what, what, what are they going to do? I, you know, I have no idea. <laughs> I'd, I just hope it's not a completely like a like just a rehash. He's got like but, he's got like one of those like four poster canes, right? But it but it's been but it's uh but it, but it looks like a butcher knife, you know? So, I don't know. And that concludes our discussion of the Halloween film franchise. Join us next week for a brand new episode of the SLS cast. And stay tuned for more Errors of Continuity in 2018. We hope you tune in. The music for our show is brought to you by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H.com. Shaving Mirror and Hustle are the song titles used on the program. The guest, again, was Matt from the SLS cast with Matt and Tim. Since Errors of Continuity is a podcast presented by the SLS Cast, you can find our show over at slscast.com, on Twitter at the SLS Cast, and you can always follow Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345, and me, Tim, on Twitter, if you can find me. The guest again on our concluding episode about the Halloween movie franchise was Matthew from the SLS cast with Matt and me. (laughs) (laughs) A podcast about movies. (laughs) You might have heard of it. I don't know. (laughs) It's it's like like Ben and me, you know, Roger and me, you know. The SLS cast. Mac and me. (laughs) You know, Mac and me. That's with Matt and me. Oh. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Music